This morning we are beginning what is both a new series as well as a continuing series of Bible expositions. It is a new series because it involves a section of the Bible we have not looked at together before, Genesis 37 to 50, and the very familiar story of Joseph. It is, however, not a new series in that it is in reality continuing with and building upon previous sermon series on the book of Genesis. In what seems like forever ago now, we took our first look at this very important book of the Bible by focusing on the first 11 chapters, which could be aptly subtitled the Book of Beginnings, as those chapters tell us ultimately about the beginning of everything, and even more fundamentally, why the universe consists of something rather than nothing. After that series, we took a break while we explored other parts of the Bible. Following that, we came back to look at the life of Abraham in chapters 12 to 23, roughly, followed by another change of direction, and then we embarked upon a third series in which we looked at the lives of Isaac and Jacob in Genesis 24 to 36, all of which brings us to where we are this morning. And as we launch into this new series, there are some important things for us to remember, and which will help us to approach this study with the proper mindset. Firstly, we have to remember that as we read this account of the life of Joseph, we are reading a story that is organically connected to the very first chapters of the Bible. After Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, and in the midst of God's pronouncements of the various consequences that befell them because of that rebellion, God revealed in a very brief but telling manner what the rest of the Bible's plotline was going to be all about in Genesis 3.15. The summary of which is this. The misery and destruction that entered into the world by means of the serpent slash Satan's deception and Adam and Eve's sin, all of that would ultimately be addressed and essentially undone by an eventual as yet unidentified descendant of Eve who, though wounded himself, would deal a crushing final death blow to the serpent slash Satan. In a very real sense, the rest of the Bible from that point forward is the record of the outworking of that promise in the course of human history over many years and through many stages of preparation and development. And all of it culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who was indeed the promised descendant of Eve and who did at the cross utterly defeat Satan when he took the penalty for his people's sin endured fully God's wrath, and thus rendered as null and void the ultimate claims of sin and death upon God's people. Well, in addition to remembering that initial promise in Genesis 3, we need to remember one of the first installments of God's outworking of these things in the covenant that he made with Abraham, first appearing in Genesis 12, but then again in the reaffirmation and ratification of that covenant in Genesis 15. And it is just there, in the midst of this ratification and reiteration of this covenant, faithfulness, pledged to Abraham and his descendants, but it's just there that God also makes an amazing, ominous, prophetic pronouncement. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But, 
I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Well, if you're familiar with the Bible's storyline at all, then you will recognize that prophecy as a reference to the events of Exodus involving Moses and Pharaoh and the people of Israel. That's what this prophecy was talking about, although the actual events were still hundreds of years in the future. Well, fast forward a little bit from there to the passages we are taking up today, the story of Joseph. With these accounts, we have drawn significantly closer to the events spoken of in Genesis 15. And even though the events spoken of there are still somewhat in the future, even at this point, nevertheless, what the story of Joseph does for us is help us to understand how it is that this prophecy came to be. In our study, we're going to look carefully at the chain of events that ultimately set the stage, firstly for the preservation and protection of God's people, and then for the multiplication of his people, and then the subjugation of his people, and then eventually to the deliverance of his people that were no longer an isolated tribe, but were now a great nation. These chapters set the stage for all of that. In addition to remembering those things, there is at least one other factor to keep in mind as we go forward, one that is highlighted by an incident that is recorded in Luke 24, and which took place right after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In that event, Jesus sort of drops in on two men who were traveling to Emmaus, and who were distressed over what had happened to Jesus, whom they thought up until his death at least, was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. These men were not yet aware of Jesus as having been resurrected because their eyes had not yet been opened to see it, as the passage tells us, and so were very confused by everything that had taken place and just didn't know what to make of it all. And it's at this point that Jesus appears and addresses them in their despair and confusion when he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you catch that? beginning with Moses and all the prophets. In other words, Jesus would have taken those two men, among other things, through the very chapters we are about to look at, through the life of Joseph, and in the process, would have shown these two men what those scriptures had to say about him. Now, to be sure, Moses himself would not have known, nor would he have been able to point out to the people in his day the sorts of things that Jesus came along later and pointed out, using the very same scriptures. And yet those truths and realities were all there. How was that possible? Because Moses wrote better than he knew. Because Moses, as with all the biblical authors, wrote under the influence and inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit. Does that mean, then, that Moses' understanding and application of these things to God's people in his day would have been insufficient? Not at all. While admittedly what Moses did understand about these passages was only a shadow of what could have been understood about them, 
it would have nevertheless still have been vital and instructive for the people of God in his day and at that particular stage of redemptive history. However, Jesus' own treatment of these passages in Luke 24 means that we cannot stop with understanding what these things might have meant for God's people in the Old Testament. We have to look also ahead to, to see for ourselves how these verses reveal and point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll be doing that at different points along the way. Well, we'll make more background observations and intra-biblical connections as we move forward. But for now, we'll let that suffice as we turn to the passage itself. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, please help us now to hear these words and receive these words as your words to us, to receive them as the perfectly sufficient and complete and inspired word that they are. Use them to shape us and make us more like your Son, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 37 starting at verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, just to bring you up to speed, and in case you are not familiar with Jacob's background, many years before all of this, Jacob, with the help of his mother, had deceived his father Isaac, and as a result had received the blessing and inheritance that Isaac intended to give Jacob's brother Esau, but which, as God had told Rebekah many years before, should have gone to Jacob all along. In the aftermath, and because of concerns about what Esau might do in retaliation, Jacob was sent away to live with his good-for-nothing relative, Laban. During his time there, and in spite of Laban's dishonesty, Jacob became prosperous and began to build a family. He fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and wanted to marry her, but by a bit of deception on Laban's part, he ended up marrying Rachel's sister, Leah, whom he did not love. Subsequently, Laban, by means of extortion, really, allows Jacob to go ahead and marry Rachel as well, but only in exchange for a promise of years of what essentially amounted to slave labor. Then followed a period of hardship as he dealt with the continued dishonesty of Laban and with the growing difficulties between his two wives, which was further complicated by Rachel's inability to conceive. And one of the consequences that resulted from Rachel's infertility was a season of what could be termed as competitive childbearing, as Rachel gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob in marriage to act as a kind of surrogate, and then, not to be outdone, Leah does the same and gives him Zilpah. And so Jacob married her as well, and subsequently had children by Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah, and eventually by Rachel as well, from whom came Joseph and in her dying moments, Benjamin. With that in mind, then, we return to the opening two verses of Genesis 37, where we find Joseph, the son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, 
who is now seventeen years old and is working in the fields with his brothers, the sons of the servant wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. And you can imagine that if this story was being presented as a movie, the uh, opening scene would possibly consist of some sort of long, slow opening shot of a field from a distance at first, but then gradually zooming in on a group of young men toiling together. At any rate, that's how the story of Joseph begins. And then right off the bat, before the story really even gets going, we are given this brief but crucial bit of information. And Joseph brought a bad report of them, that is his brothers, to their father. Again, it's only the briefest bit of information. However, as brief as it is, it is still helpful, as by it we are introduced to what will become a major aspect of the plotline of the entire Joseph cycle, one that will not be fully and finally resolved until the very end of Genesis. Right here in this little microcosm, we see a tension illustrated. The tension between Joseph, the favored one, the one who was in tight with his father, and the rest of his brothers. Now what was this bad report about? We, we really don't know. It could have been some sort of immoral activity they were involved in. It could have been some sort of shady business practice. It could have been laziness or a lack of concern for doing things properly. It could have been all those things or none of those things. We simply don't know. What we do know is that it is a report that his brothers certainly would not have wanted Joseph to make but Joseph does it anyway. Continuing on, we read, Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. With these verses, we are introduced to what lies at the heart of the tension in this story and to what likely contributed, at least at some level, to the self-centeredness and naivety with which Joseph, at times, seemed to approach his relationships with his brothers. What these verses reveal, quite plainly, is the favoritism that was being exercised by Jacob toward Joseph. And several things are worth pointing out at this juncture. Firstly, the favoritism that Jacob, Jacob showed was, was obvious, right? I mean, if you had the opportunity to sit down and interview Joseph's brothers, uh, they would likely have given you dozens and dozens of examples of how Jacob's favoritism had played out amongst them over the years. Which leads to the next thing. A second thing to notice is the particular example of favoritism depicted in these verses, this gift of a robe of many colors that was bestowed upon Joseph by his father. Now most translations talk about this robe or coat as a very colorful sort of garment, and it may well have been that. However, a number of Hebrew scholars more recently and upon further study have begun to conclude that the thing about this coat was not so much that it was colorful, but that it was a full-length coat extending all the way to the ankles and the wrists, which the Hebrew seems to indicate. Now, why might that be important? Well, back in the day, if you worked out in the elements, and if it was cold out, you might wear some sort of coat to keep warm, 
but typically it would be some sort of sleeveless coat, more like a vest, in order to leave your arms free for greater ease and range of movement as you labored. But by giving Joseph a coat that extended all the way to his ankles and to his wrists, if that was what happened, Jacob was likely signaling that he had elevated Joseph. In other words, receiving this coat was a sign that Joseph had been promoted, that he was now management, not labor. And if that was the case, it would uh, help explain not only the fact of his older brother's anger over all of this, but also the degree of their anger. As the text says, they were so angry, they could not speak peacefully to him. The third thing to note about Jacob's favoritism is how painfully uh, ironic it is. Of all people, Jacob, more than anyone, should have understood the way that favoritism can wreck and ravage a family. He had seen it firsthand growing up. He had a front row seat to this travesty. He had to watch his father over and over again showing his preferences for Esau in all sorts of ways. Jacob knew what that felt like. He knew how much that hurt. And yet he also knew it from the other side, as his mother chose him as her favorite, perhaps to try and make up for her husband's foolishness. Who knows? However, while her motives may have been slightly more altruistic, the damaging effects were still there as, through her influence, tensions were heightened, not only between the brothers, but between her and her husband as well. So Jacob should have known better, and yet he went on to repeat the sins of his father. The very thing he might well have sworn he would never do if he ever had children of his own. That was the thing he ended up doing. It was a, a foolish and horrible thing that Jacob did. The fourth thing to note about Jacob's favoritism are the painfully predictable consequences. In our previous Genesis series, we saw the consequences of this sort of thing worked out in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. We saw both estrangement between brothers followed by separation from their parents for a long time. In the story of Joseph, we see now and will continue to see the same sorts of things. Estrangement between the siblings and separation from a parent, in this case one parent since Rachel has already died. But the same pattern is there and continues to manifest itself wherever and whenever the ugly specter of favoritism raises its head. The story continues. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. 
Now, several things need to be highlighted here. Firstly, let's think about these dreams for a moment. The fact that God communicated to his people by means of dreams should come as no surprise. Uh, God communicated to his people, um, to Abraham, through a dream. Uh, he did the same thing with Jacob. He even did it with Laban, of all people. And so here Joseph comes talking about dreams that he's had, which should have immediately put Jacob on alert as to what this potentially, at least, could have meant. Verse 11 seems to indicate that it did just that. Now, the substance of both of these dreams is essentially the same, even though the symbols involved are different. One is an agricultural image that depicts sheaves of grain bowing down to one particular sheaf, which is Joseph. The other image is a celestial one with the sun, moon, and stars also bowing down to Joseph. And while there are some differences between the two dreams, the point of them both is the same, a point that is not lost on either Joseph's brothers nor upon his father. And again, a few things to draw to your attention here. Firstly, notice the descriptions of hatred with regard to Joseph's brothers as uh, they respond to um, throughout these verses and especially in response to these dreams. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him in verse 4. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. And with that Notice that after his second dream report, even Jacob himself appears to be a little peeved with his son, although some of this may have been put on by Jacob in an attempt to minimize his other son's anger by appearing to at least side with them on this point. Well, taking note of how his family has been reacting to him leads us to another observation having to do with Joseph himself. Now, it is one thing for him to have this amazing dream and then to come and share that with his family, only to get a very bad reaction to it. I mean, you can hardly fault him for that. But the mind-boggling thing is that he does this two times in a row. The first time he shared it, you might look at Joseph and perhaps pass it off as youthful, trusting naivety with regard to how he handles this revelation he's received. But for him to come back a second time knowing that his brothers are already so furious with him that they can't even speak to him. Can we really pass that off as naivety? Well, you can draw your own conclusions, but I think this illustrates that perhaps there was a little bit of pride on Joseph's part that was beginning to show itself here. I think that perhaps all the extra attention from his father, coupled with these dreams, has started to go to his head a little bit. And in spite of the trouble that relating this second dream will surely cause, he elects to do it anyway, rather than just keeping it to himself. In other words, as good a guy as Joseph is, he has his own sins, his own shortcomings. He is a Bible hero, no doubt, but a flawed one. And so while he does in many ways foreshadow the Savior, he is also very much in need of the Savior that he foreshadows. And in that sense... He is not all that different from you and me, who also illustrate Jesus with our life, as well as demonstrate our need of Jesus all at the same time. But the other thing to notice about these dreams, and in the end the most significant thing about them, is this. They came from God. These dreams came from God, which means Joseph really was going to be elevated amongst his family, even over his own father, and in some way rule over them. 
In short, these dreams are true. And so in spite of Jacob's many failings and the deeds of Joseph's brothers, which we'll see soon enough, and in spite of Joseph's own naivety and personal shortcomings, in spite of all of that, God is going to honor Joseph. God is going to work out his purposes through this ragtag bunch of people. And what we see in all this, and what we will continue to see throughout these accounts, is the amazing, sovereign, providential superintendence of God over everything that happens in the lives of his people and indeed in the entire world. The story of Joseph demonstrates in particular that often troubling reality that you and I continue to wrestle with all the time. And that is the fact that God's great redemptive purposes, this plan that he is working out, includes and makes use of evil circumstances and even evil people and evil intentions. All of those things, somehow, some way, God manages to incorporate into his plan and uses for the ultimate outworking of his good and righteous purposes as he weaves together the various strands of this tapestry that we know as history. Still another thing to keep in mind here at the end is this thing we've already discussed, Jacob's favoritism, but it is worth reflecting on a bit further from a personal standpoint at least. No doubt there would be some of us in this room who have felt the sting of favoritism, maybe still do, or others of us who have perhaps even caused the sting, and who are still reaping the harvest of that unfortunate sowing. And then there may be some who have only begun to raise a family and for whom Jacob's foolishness ought to serve as a cautionary tale. That's the sobering reality seen in this passage. You really can repeat the sins of your parents. It's quite possible for you to do and become the person that you swore you would never become. That's the bad news. But there's good news too. The good news is that there is forgiveness and grace for the brokenhearted and for the repentant. And the good news is that, as we've already seen, God can work in and through amazingly dysfunctional families like Jacob's and crazy circumstances like Joseph's to accomplish his purposes. One last thing to see. If we step out onto the balcony that Luke 24 invites us to, and survey the landscape of this passage, we find, even in these opening few verses, that Joseph's life really does point us forward to and prepares the way for the Lord Jesus. And we see that in this tension and conflict that exists between Joseph and his own brothers, his own family, his own people. Because this present envy and jealousy and deep hatred, as we shall see more fully next week, will soon be fanned into the flames of a murderous hatred, which is horrible. But, as horrible as all of that is, in it we see the definite foreshadowing of the time, in centuries yet to come, when the Lord Jesus was also hated and rejected by his very own people, and would see them turn on him as well with murderous intent. 
And just as with Joseph, where the rejection of his brothers became the catalyst that moved Joseph into circumstances through which he would save his own people from disaster later on, so it was with Jesus. The rejection and hatred and murderous intent of his own people became the catalyst that moved Jesus to the circumstances where he would deliver and save his people, the cross, where God's redemptive purposes, foreshadowed in Joseph's life, reached their ultimate, foreordained, and completely necessary conclusion to the praise and glory and honor of God. You spend some time thinking about that. Let's pray together. 